0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
1: What did I pay? They said, sir, you prepaid tens of millions of dollars. I prepaid my tax. Tens
0: over the last number of years. Tens of millions of dollars I prepaid. Well, the Manhattan District Attorney will soon know whether former President Donald Trump was telling the truth. Millions of pages of financial documents were handed over to the D.A. by Trump's accountants on Monday just hours after Trump lost his last-ditch effort at the Supreme Court to keep them secret. The justices essentially slammed the door on Trump, rejecting not only his appeal over his tax records, but also eight appeals that attempted to overturn the presidential election results in five states. Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Greg, in 16 words, the Supreme Court finally disposed of the issue of Trump's tax returns.
1: 16 words that it took him four months to produce, June. This was the case where the district attorney in Manhattan, Cyrus Vance Jr., was trying to get Donald Trump's tax returns as part of a criminal investigation that he is conducting there. And Vance has been trying to get those returns for some time from Trump's accounting firm. And this case, you may recall, was up at the Supreme Court last year. The Supreme Court refused to grant broad presidential immunity from these sorts of things kicked it back down to the lower courts and said, if you want to look at more specific challenges to the subpoena, that's fine. Those specific challenges were rejected by the lower courts. And now, finally, the Supreme Court, after four months of delay, said, we are not going to block that lower court ruling.
0: So now, is there any explanation for why they sat on this for four months?
1: There is no explanation. It is highly unusual for them to wait this long. I can speculate a little bit. The issue, although not necessarily about Trump being president, did change a little bit once Trump left office. So it's possible the court was waiting until he left office. The claim that Trump was making was basically that the subpoena was too broad and it was designed to harass him rather than really further an investigative end. But that still doesn't explain why the court needed to wait for an entire month after the inauguration to issue this one-sentence order. It's a bit of a head-scratcher. It's important to note that it's not just Trump's tax returns, and this is eight years' worth of records. It's also the Trump Organization's tax returns. It's other financial documents.
0: And the DA's investigation has broadened, and he's beefing up his team. He
1: has beefed up his team that is his right. He has contracted with a forensic accounting firm. He's added on a veteran prosecutor. The initial investigation that was about these hush payments to Stormy Daniels and another woman, since then, Vance's office has said that the investigation may actually be much broader and may involve tax fraud, other forms of financial fraud. So it does at this point, seem like it is a pretty robust investigation. And now we'll just have to wait to see where it goes.
0: Trump lost on the taxes. He and his allies also lost on eight appeals related to efforts to overturn the election.
1: Yeah, some of these were expected and some of these maybe weren't. The ones that were expected were the most consequential ones in terms of had the court actually taken them up. These were the cases that claimed that Joe Biden's election was procured by fraud, should be overturned. The court had already indicated, both by not expediting those cases and by refusing to grant emergency relief, that it wasn't especially interested in taking them up. So it was was really a formality in terms of those cases. There were two other appeals, actually, stemming from the same case that looked like it had a very good chance of being taken and affecting future presidential elections. These are appeals out of Pennsylvania, filed by Republicans of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling that granted a three-day extension of time for absentee ballots to be received in that state, for mail-in ballots to be received and to count. And the Supreme Court refused to block that ruling before the election, then refused to expedite the case and hear arguments before the election. But there was still a chance they were going to take it up Instead, the court, after several weeks of deliberation, decided not to take the case. Three conservative justices say they would have granted it, but you need four for the court to take the case.
0: That was interesting because the three conservative justices, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Leto, and Neil Gorsuch, were unable to get a fourth vote. So that means that the two newest justices appointed by Trump wouldn't vote to take the case.
1: That's right. And it is fascinating. Kavanaugh had previously signaled that he disagreed with that Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision. The argument is basically that the Constitution says that the state legislature gets to set the rules for presidential elections and that a state Supreme Court doesn't have the power to overturn what was pretty explicit in the state code and back when we had a shorthanded Supreme Court Brett Kavanaugh had cast a vote to stay that lower court decision but Kavanaugh did not vote to grant this case after the fact and it may be that he the case was now moot and the court shouldn't take it up now Amy Coney Barrett we really don't know anything but it is certainly very interesting that she did not join her conservative colleagues in agreeing to take it up. This is an issue that has cropped up on a lot of situations, a variation of that cropped up in the Bush v. Gore case. Conservatives have been arguing for a couple of decades that state Supreme Courts don't have this power to override a state legislature. So it is a missed chance for a lot of conservatives to get a ruling that might have clarified that there are real limits on what state courts can do in the context of presidential elections.
0: Justice Alito said that this could lead to guidance for future elections but wasn't the case moot and is this Supreme Court in the habit of going outside what it has to do?
1: So the case was arguably moot absolutely. There is some precedent that Justice Alito pointed to where the court has said that in election cases in particular they fall under the exception to the mootness doctrine that says if an issue is recurring but tends to evade review. For example, because courts run out of time to decide the case before it becomes moot, then the court will make an exception and say, we need to decide this issue so we can, you know, set the rules for future disputes. There's certainly not a consensus on whether the court should have done that in in this case, but there was at least an argument that the court could have done that if it wanted to.
0: Trump did win one case because the Supreme Court turned away adult film star Stormy Daniels over her defamation lawsuit against Trump.
1: Yes, and she filed a a cert petition asking the court to hear her her argument and revive the lawsuit. This stems from allegations, not just that she had an affair with Donald Trump, but that a man approached her in a parking lot and uh, threatened her because she was talking with a magazine about cooperating with a story about the affair. Donald Trump, she uh, later tweeted that uh, this whole thing, that the man was non-existent, uh, that this whole thing was a con job, and she said that that defamed her. And uh, a lower court said, a federal appeals court said, uh, under Texas law, uh, that's not, uh, that doesn't constitute defamation. You can't press ahead with the, the suit. Stormy Daniels, uh, and the Supreme Court uh, yesterday refused to hear the appeal.
0: Am I going too far, Greg, in saying that with not taking any of those cases involving Trump's personal disputes, the Supreme Court were sort of washing their hands of him? That's certainly a
1: a conclusion (laughs) one could draw, Uh, and certainly a theme that maybe the court does have Trump exhaustion. I mean, that said, they did also, on the same orders list, agree to hear couple cases involving Trump policies. Now, these cases may eventually wash out because the Biden administration has suggested they're going to change the policies. But in terms of cases involving Donald Trump, the individual, yes, it does sort of appear like the court as a whole didn't have a whole lot of appetite for getting involved in those
0: about the two cases that you're talking about. The court took cases involving the immigrant wealth tax that the Trump administration instituted and abortion counseling rule. Why would the court take up those cases knowing that the Biden administration is is not going to enforce those rules or is going to just write them off the books?
1: It's a good question. And really, all I can do is speculate. And my speculation is that The Biden administration, in neither of those cases, filed anything saying, uh, we are going to change the rules. Please hold off on on granting the case. And uh, until the Biden administration does that, perhaps the Supreme Court decided, we're going to go ahead and do what we would normally do, which is uh, to take these cases up because they do involve uh, lower courts that have struck down uh, important government policies. Uh, it may just be a, an access, a, a formality. It is very hard to imagine the court ultimately would hear these cases if indeed the Biden administration has changed the underlying policies.
0: The court has gotten rid of a few cases dealing with immigration because the Biden administration has changed policies.
1: That's right. The court has already done that with a case involving the border wall, a case involving Trump's Remain in Mexico policy for asylum applicants. The court really doesn't have any interest in reviewing a policy that is no longer enforced or that is being changed or in forcing a new administration to defend something an old administration did. So they appear to be giving the Biden administration some running room here to say they're going to change things.
0: Thanks, Greg. That's Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Coming up next, who can you sue when the lights go out? You're listening to Bloomberg. Thanks, Greg. That's Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Power outages left millions of Texas residents without heat and some without water in the midst of a bitter cold wave. And the operator of the power grid in Texas was hit with a second lawsuit in as many days over those power outages. The lawsuit alleges that ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, failed to properly weatherize the state's electric infrastructure despite a history of cold weather power outages. Also named in the suit is the American Electric Power Company, a multi-state electric utility that serves parts of Texas. But plaintiffs may be frustrated by the legal system. Legal shields offer power companies broad protections from most weather-related blackouts. Joining me is Ellen Gilmer, senior legal reporter at Bloomberg Law. So far, what kind of lawsuits or complaints have you seen with regard to the Texas outage?
2: We've seen at least a couple of cases so far that have been filed in Texas State Court by consumers who are saying that ERCOT, which is the uh, Electric Reliability Council of Texas, this is uh, the grid overseer, they operate the electric grid in Texas. So we've seen a couple of cases against both ERCOT and a couple of local Electric utilities, including AEP Texas and Center Point. Um, and the claims so far are negligence, gross negligence, um, but also a very interesting takings claim, which says that ERCOT uh, effectively took private property without proper comp- compensation by uh, arguably allowing these outages that
0: led to food spoilage and damage to homes and, and what have you. So let's talk about why it's so hard to sue electric utilities for blackouts. It's very hard because an electric utility operates
2: under what's called a tariff, which is basically a contract uh, with consumers, and uh, it's approved by regulators, and it says that the utility isn't responsible for outages, isn't liable for outages that are caused by the weather or other things that the utility can't control. So that, that uh, stipulation is in all of these tariffs that govern all of these different companies that are operating in Texas. And that's going to be the first defense is we, you know, look, we can't control the weather. This stuff happens. Um, and there are some workarounds. Uh, if a litigant can demonstrate that utility was negligent, grossly negligent, had willful misconduct or all of these other kind of really high legal bars, then a complaint might get some traction
0: in your story, you mentioned that one of the state utilities even says on its website, in our business, we cannot guarantee an uninterruptible supply of power. Tell us why the Texas case may be even more difficult than others. Texas is is especially complicated
2: because so many different things went wrong. So it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't just the utilities, it wasn't just the grid overseers, it wasn't just the power generators, it was of all of those things you know you had all these different types of power generators that tripped offline were froze up or were otherwise unreliable you had uh the grid overseers mandating these outages um some people say they didn't properly anticipate uh the problems that would arise with this kind of weather in texas Um, and then you have the utilities who are actually responsible for um, bringing that electricity to your home and so you can't point the finger at just one party here that makes it potentially a little bit tougher to bring a claim if a consumer were to want to go to court over
0: this. So what are some of the workarounds? What are some of the ways that people in the past have won lawsuits over outages?
2: The main opportunity that they have to to actually pin liability on the utility is to say that the utility acted in gross negligence or negligently, um, willful misconduct, uh, so any of this kind of extreme alleged misbehavior or you know, failure to properly respond to the circumstances, that's where um, some litigants occasionally had success. Um, but it is, that's really hard in any case, those are really high legal bars to clear. And then in one of these Texas cases that we've seen filed so far, they have also claimed uh, takings, and, and that's just a whole different type of claim. Uh, which is a a unique approach to to challenging what's happened here. And we don't really know how that's going to work out, so we'll just have to keep an eye on that case and see what happens.
0: So one of the lawsuits says that Texas had practically identical failures in 1989 and 2011 that resulted in exhaustive reports and recommendations. Does that play in here? Definitely. If you're trying to say that a
2: party was negligent, being able to point to all of this information that they had that they could have used in their planning process is enormously powerful. So that's going to be one of the main arguments uh, that these litigants will have to make is, look, first of all, we've seen this happen before, maybe not at this scale, but we've seen this kind of weather in Texas before and we've seen that various elements of our electric grid weren't equipped for this kind of situation. And yet, these various parties didn't do what they needed to do to prepare for that situation. That would be the argument.
0: And are there a lot of law firms already plaintiffs, law firms advertising for plaintiffs? There are actually a number of um, new websites have just cropped up
2: uh, to recruit plaintiffs or potential plaintiffs um, for proposed class actions and other types of litigation. So you'll definitely see more plaintiff firms um, trying to get in the game here. And, and scoop up any any parties who who have really suffered as a result of the blackouts and and want to try to uh, assign that liability to someone.
0: Have any states made or any counties made any moves to hold utilities more accountable for blackouts? Well, it's a unique area of law for sure, and
2: we haven't seen a lot on on the actual liability in the courtroom front. Um, Probably the most similar situation it doesn't have to do with blackouts, but with wildfires. And in California, certainly we've seen uh, PG&E held liable for wildfires that were linked to to their equipment. Um, so that's kind of interesting, but, but different from what's happening in Texas. More often what we're seeing is proceedings in state regulatory bodies, um, public service commissions that regulate the electric grid, and you're seeing more consumers, um, and consumer advocates going to those um, regulators and saying um, that utilities either need to reimburse customers or they need to invest in various resilience efforts, and uh, we'll probably see a lot more on that front in Texas and in all of the other states that sort are of looking at what's happening there.
0: Where does climate change fit in to this? Well, that's a really interesting question and it's something that that we explored with
2: similar who are trying to really champion a unique new type of tort claim, which would be called kind of a climate resilience claim. The argument that uh, some company or, or somebody knew that you know, the impacts of climate change would make something worse, and they failed to respond to, to that knowledge. So it's similar to what you see in, in any claim that has to do with uh, extreme weather and poor planning, but it has this This climate lens uh, where you are really trying to hold people accountable for, you know, allegedly ignoring what we all, what all of the um, scientific research and, you know, various regulatory bodies have said about how climate change could worsen the effects of storms and worsen particular impacts on the ground.
0: Do you see any utilities or grid operators planning for climate change? That's a great question. I mean, we're definitely seeing it. I think
2: advocates would argue, uh, environmental advocates and uh, consumer advocates would argue that the utilities and grid overseers and everybody else aren't doing nearly enough to respond to the impacts of climate change that we're already seeing and the impacts that we'll see in the future. Um, But there are efforts uh, that are underway at at the state and federal level. Uh, It's just a, a matter of, is it enough? and. Uh, if it's not enough, you know what what needs to change, and and who can make that change.
0: So here you have these law firms looking to get plaintiffs for class actions, despite the fact that it seems to be an uphill battle. Are these sometimes settled so that the plaintiffs get some money and don't even have to go to court?
2: Yes, I think the uh, the objective of a lot of class actions is is really to settle. Most people don't want to go to trial, so. That would be one of the, the outcomes that the lawyers could be pushing for here. Um, but the, the kind of first order of business is just getting all the claims out on the table and, uh, and, and fighting over, over whether they're fair claims and, and whether the utilities or other parties have, have good defenses
0: to them. So it's a real uphill battle
2: then? It is. It is. But if there are settlements or if even just one of these cases were successful, that would really open the door for more claims like this, um, either related to the Texas blackout or for future scenarios. So it's a really important area of, of law to watch.
0: And are there any investigations by the state going on? In Texas, the attorney
2: general has also started an investigation with some claims that, you know, could could relate to future legal actions. On Friday night, the attorney general issued what are called um, civil investigative demands. which is kind of the first step in an investigation. Um, and he issued these to ERCOT, the grid operator, and a whole bunch of different utilities to figure out exactly what happened, who knew what at what time. And these are really kind of the building blocks for any future lethal action that he might bring against the companies. He says he's looking at whether uh, ERCOT and the other in the companies quote grossly mishandled the extreme
0: weather situation. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Alan. That's Alan Gilmer, senior legal reporter for Bloomberg Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weekday at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.